This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. Well, as we continue on in Titus, uh, let's just kind of get everybody on the same page. And please forgive me if my voice is a little weak today or uh, kind of cuts out. Um, As we come to the final chapter of Titus, we are about to turn the page, (laughs) like Bob Seger, I guess, uh, in the field guide of church planting that we've been surveying. So thus far... Um, we've been examining what it means to be true children of a common faith in God's house, delighted to live um, by His rules, living out His, uh, delighted to live out His rules and in His roles that He has assigned to each of us uh, by His sovereignty. Uh, we have been encouraged to look unto godly elders and godly leaders or pastors uh, who are seeking to mimic that true perfect elder. Jesus Christ. We've been made aware of how it matters what we should believe because false teaching can not only break up churches, but it can break up entire families and certainly shipwreck entire lives. And we've been also keyed in on what God expects from his sons and daughters in his house, his church, since he has brought us into his house, adopted by his grace. There have been various themes in Titus chapter 1 and in Titus chapter 2 that have driven us uh, to look into ourselves and look to the scriptures, and they have been repeatedly uh, beckoning to us. And two major ones have been what? Self-control and good works. It would seem that believers on Crete had problems with self-control, right? Meaning they had very little mastery of self through self-sacrifice and They also had a problem with good works, meaning they had a problem living out that faith that they claimed to have. It would also seem that we here in the 21st century have found ourselves living on Crete yet again. See, we are saved through the knowledge of God contained in the preaching of his word to an eternal hope, Titus 1. And this saving leads to living like it right now. That's what Titus 2, 11 through 15 was all about. Yet many times, churches and and certainly individual Christians can become solely inward focused, just as a farmer can get stuck in the holler, right, Garrett? Sometimes you can just get stuck in the holler and you don't get to get out and interact with society because you're trying to grow all that good stuff. It happens sometimes. But this is God's world, all of it. It's not just our little plot, not just our homes, not just our church, all of it. To to quote one of my favorite Reformed theologians, Joseph Dirt, life's a garden, dig it, right? The whole thing, it's not just this little section. So today, Paul is going to exhort us to not become sectarian hermits. We're just off kind of in our own little echo chamber. We don't get out into the world. We don't uh, spread the gospel. We just stay in our little circles. He's going to tell us that that's wrong. Paul is going to encourage us to become the gospel. What's that mean? Well, I I recently read a book by 
a theologian named Michael Gorman. It was titled just that, Becoming the Gospel. And this whole idea of becoming the gospel was actually Paul's church planting M.O., if you, could say, if you would say it like that. We, we not only need to have the gospel in our minds and know it, know the, have the knowledge of it, we need to live it out in the world since the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24. Right? It's not just here, it's not just in our church circles, it's everywhere. So why is that? Why do we need to live it out, not just in our churches, in our homes, but everywhere that we are? Because although we have been adopted into God's family and into his house, we at one time were outside of the camp, east of Eden, in darkness and sin brought forth by the fall. See, we are called to be the lamp of the gospel that others may see the path of righteousness and follow it to the cross. And many times, we Christians, honestly, we need to get lost again to be encouraged to go out into the highways and into the byways to declare the wedding feast of our big brother Jesus, thrown by our loving Father. Amen. Would you turn, if you're willing and able, to Titus chapter 3. We'll be in verses 1 through 8 this morning. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Hear the living word of God for you this morning. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another." But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you guide us by the same Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, that breathe out the very scriptures we seek to examine this morning. Would you illuminate our minds? Would you let nothing be done of our own accord? But would the implanted word go deep within us and spring forth fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold for your glory and our benefit? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So as we come to the third act of Titus, we need to be reminded of chapter 2 before being, re being reminded uh, of chapter 3 here. Paul, through Titus, uh, has just declared and rebuked with all authority, as he just said in Titus 2.15. And this rebuking with all authority is is concerning this, how Christians, sons and daughters, in God the Father's house of the church, are to live in relation to one another, in these roles that God has assigned to us. If we have been brought into God's house and are all God's children now, all in a common faith, 1 John 3, then we are not allowed to live like we are on the street corner in sin and in darkness. Living out the roles God calls Christian men and women to embody seen in the example of the godly elder 
of Jesus Christ and also the godly elder of the caste that we looked at in Titus 1, 5 through 9, we know that some of this growing into those roles and living out those rules, some of it takes time. If we think back about the, uh, the churches on Crete being kind of broken and having those castes, some broken bones take much longer to heal, don't they? Sometimes it takes longer to get traction. But this is all part of the good works that God has set before us, with one of those good works being self-control, meaning we're not rebellious against God's design. We're starting to see how we as God's children and then the children of the elder not being insubordinate, how this are all coming together and we're being treated like those children. We're being treated like those elders' children because we're called that same, we're called those same purposes, right? So we are to embrace God's standard of living in his house because his house is in the world, his world, but not the fallen rebellious world following after Satan, 1 John 2, which is full of the lust of the eye and the flesh and the prideful boast of life. But let me ask you this, thinking about this, how many of us never leave home? All right, it's not 2020, it's 2022. We can get past all that stuff. How many of us never leave home? Obviously, you who are here today have left your house. You've driven here. You may have stopped for gas and interacted with someone that's lost in darkness at the gas station or maybe drove through Dairy Queen to get a sausage twin pack on the way over here that sounds really good to me right now. Right? Maybe you've done this. You men who work and maybe you've, you provide for your families in a secular world or in a secular job and you interact with secular people. And you ladies and guys too that shop for the groceries, I do that too. You leave the home and interact with people every week, almost every day. Many are unbelievers. So if we don't just stay in our houses all the time and we go outside the house, it's the title of the sermon today, outside the house, how are we to live? How are we to live thinking about one of my favorite, my favorite, uh, I don't want to say trilogy, I don't like the movies, but my favorite uh, books and <clears throat> um, series, I guess you could say, Lord of the Rings. How are we to live outside the Shire? We're to bring the Shire to the outside world. Right? We see this in the Lord of the Rings. How are we to live outside the Shire, outside the house? Well, Titus 3, 1 through 2, let's read this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Right here in chapter 3, the very first verses of chapter 3, Paul shifts from looking inside God's house to looking outside. We're going to immediately notice that much of Paul's advice to Titus and us on how we are to live outside of our comfy homes <coughs> and our comfy churches is... Well, it's pretty much the same. There is not a lot of difference. It's, it's exactly how we would live inside of these two spheres. Many of the false teachers that we've seen crop up in the past 200 years, like, for example, Charles Finney, who manipulated many in the Second Great Awakening, which actually started right here in Kentucky in the 1800s, and your televangelist hucksters who want your money, many of them believe that that all you have to do and many teach, all that you have to do is go to church and act decent for two hours. It's two hours here because I'm a long-winded preacher. Two hours, 
once a week. And then once you get out, you can go back to living just like you do the rest of the week. You look no different than anybody else out in the world, as if God only looks down upon church buildings or where people gather as a church, and that's the only thing that he sees throughout the entire week. Like, oh, and he doesn't have any sort of omnipotence and omniscience over anything else. No, that's silly. Verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 1 in chapter 3, remind them. We need to be reminded from time to time, just as the basketball player who wins dunk contests and can drain threes needs from time to time to go back and learn and be reminded how to dribble. Fundamentals. We are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We are to be obedient. When we are outside of God's house and of our homes, we see self-government, self-control, colliding with civil government, which God has given for the purpose of upholding order, even if those civil authorities are not godly. Romans 13. That's what the whole chapter of Romans 13 is about. While being submissive and obedient to authorities applies to church leadership, as we've seen in Hebrews already, honoring your elders. In the context here, Paul is speaking about being good citizens because it goes from talking about being in the church to being out in the world. So hold on a minute, Zach. You, you mean to tell me we're to be submissive to the government and obedient? I mean, Zach, come on, like, do you not know what time we live in, Pastor? Where have you been for the past two years? Well, I, I do. I know where we are. I lived through it just like you have. But do you know what time Paul and Titus and the whole New Testament church lived in? The emperor was esteemed to actual godhood actually having to worship him with a pinch of incense. It sounds very much like Dr. Fauci in the science, right? Like he's, he's the most powerful person in America. He is the science. But, but Caesar said he was God. So does this mean being submissive and obedient to authorities? Does this mean that we do every single thing the government tells us to do? Absolutely not. Proverbs 8, 12 through 16. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. Rulers are supposed to reign and rule with wisdom, not wisdom from the science, not wisdom from the experts, not wisdom from the polls, right? because all of these are manipulated abstracts of fallen mankind. What, who, who, let me just ask you this, raise of hands, I'll, I'll do a poll, I'll kind of go against my own word right here, but at least it's a real one. Who is they? Anybody know who they are? I'm not talking about gender pronouns. Who's they? Anybody know? Oh, they say you're not supposed to do this. Or they said that you're supposed to do... Does, who knows who they are? Nobody. No one. Who's they? Right? This is all manipulated, man-centered information. Okay? And so often, civil authorities rule based on this wisdom and it's echo chamber wisdom 
and they come up with their own polling parties and they come up with their own societies, their own independent sources so that they can have their own things, their own wisdom, their own facts checked so they can continue with their narrative. That's not a conspiracy theory. Does that mean we just need to go along with what the government says? No, not all the time. But kings and rulers and authorities, they are to rule with the true standard of wisdom, the word of God. They're actually called to do this. That's what Romans 13 actually says. That the sword, civil government, to keep order, has been given by God to everybody from a mayor to a president, whether they realize it or not. They are under his control, and he has sovereignly put them there, even bad ones. When a government does not rule justly, when a government walks in the way of evil, does that mean the Christian is to follow in passive submissiveness? Acts 5.29, Peter's talking to a, a bad group of rulers, and he says this, We must obey God rather than men. The Bible contains the universal standard and universal rule that all governments should be ruling by. That is one purpose of the Great Commission is that it would change even the hearts of kings to rule justly and princes to rule justly, emulating the, the true and just king, Jesus, who reigns righteously. All kings, all presidents, whatever the position may be, even down to a, a commissioner out in the county, they are to be small representations of Christ who reigns and rules righteously. But when a government invades upon the Christian and says, you must do X, Y, Z, and it doesn't have to be something extreme, we must be as accommodating as possible, seeking to live our lives quietly, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. See, we have so many Christians who think that having an allegiance to Christ means being an anarchist. We've seen this just so prevalent in the past few years. God has given civil government as a minister of life and death, of law and order, even if it's not a good civil government. Many times our civil governments are ministries of death because they follow the culture of death. They follow Satan. Yes, they do. Yet, Romans 13 again expressly says God is in control of every mayor, of every senator, of every commissioner, of every congressman, anything like that, even dictators, because he's ruling over them all. Each terrible government we see in the world right now, righteousness and claiming to be wise. That's Romans 1. They're called to rule with wisdom and all of these governments believe that they do rule in wisdom, but they're ruling out of their own foolish wisdom and not the wisdom of God. So what are we to do? How do we live as God's child his house in the world? We are to be submissive to civil authorities as far as we can until what they command either expressly calls for sin or impedes on our conscience. Let me give you an example. Right, let me give you just a real-time example because we always want to go to these extremes. We know the extremes are silly. We know that what we've seen the past two, two years is going over the line. We know that. But let me give you a, an everyday example so you understand that this is not some kooky 
conspiracy theory, getting crazy type stuff. This is everyday stuff. This past week on Wednesday, before I came down with the wonderful influenza A, my coworkers and I got pulled over in Paris, or if you're from around these necks of the woods, it's purse. Okay, we got pulled over in Paris because we left the slide doors open on a van that we had just bought, and we were going from one car lot to another that was maybe a half a mile away, and we were hot, and we just left the van doors open. And the excuse from the guy that was driving was, "Well, people ride around with jeeps with the doors off all the time." I thought it was a valid, a valid uh, point there, but. We got pulled over because we had the van doors open and there were also some unharnessed bodies in the seats. So the, the officer pulled us over and asked, like, hey, what are y'all doing? And you know what we said? We're just driving from one car lot to another. We told the truth. We had, not, we had nothing to hide. We apologized and we immediately complied. Hey, we'll put our seatbelts on. We'll close it. Sorry, we, we weren't even thinking. And you know what happened? He handcuffed all of us and put no. He was very nice, and he saw that we weren't a bunch of rebel rousers, like, oh, we're trying to start trouble, and we're just driving around acting like hoodlums. No. He said, okay, that's fine. I understand. But he said something that is so applicable to this passage this morning. The officer said something to the effect of this. I know that you're not doing this out of ill intent, but if other people see you doing that, they think that they can. It's, it's one thing with five grown men riding around with van doors open, driving 20 miles an hour, unbuckled. That's one thing. But it's a completely other thing with a, a single mom with four kids riding around with the van doors open, unbuckled, isn't it? Was what that officer said to us sinful or godly? It was godly whether he knows God or not. Because our works... What we were doing with that van, they're testaments to the onlooking world, are they not? Now, what if he would have said, hey, no problem, guys, I'll let you go, but you got to give me all the cash that you all have. I'll let you go, but you got to everybody just pull your wallets out. Give me all the cash you have. It's got to be over 20s. I don't want your ones or fives. Give me all the cash you got. Should we have obliged and submitted? Should we have submitted to the authorities right there? No, because we who were actually breaking the law are now being sinned against to go even further with bribery. So being submissive to the government as far as we can in a peaceable way doesn't mean we go along with every single thing. This doesn't mean that they can tell us what we, we put in our bodies. Right? Christ declared all foods clean, Mark 7, not Caesar. That, goes, that principle there goes really far. Yet, Jesus also said in Mark 12 to render taxes to Caesar because they're his, but render yourselves, your bodies, unto God. Right? We don't need to get all uppity about, about taxes. Right? Oh, we, we don't want to do that. There's no loophole here in what Jesus said. He didn't say, render under Caesar what's Caesar's, as long as it's not over 20% or over 30%. No, he said just give to Caesar what is his. There's no loophole. Do you remember the Roman Empire? Anybody that's done any sort of history, do you remember it? You remember the gladiator games, like where they would just kill people? You remember all the, the pagan sexual worship? And you remember all the, the pagan festivals, like, you know, Artemis of the Ephesians? 
all these big things that were paid for by the government with those taxes. You think the Roman Empire spent those early Christian tax dollars on godly things? No, of course they didn't. God will deal with the government's bad stewardship. You are not God. There's a difference between taxes and donating. Okay, Taxes are extracted, but donations are free will offerings. If your taxes are used to fund something horrible, that's not your fault. It's not your fault. Should we... Should we write our senators and our congressmen and should we try to have amendments to get rid of things like that? Like funding abortions or funding transgender surgery? Of course. But at the end of the day, if we can't get that passed or if we can't get enough backing to be able to do something like that, we have the conscience to say we've tried everything we can. We can't control what the government does with our money. But if you make a free will offering to, I don't know, Planned Parenthood, or something like that, then that is on you. You see the difference? We see the difference. As far as it is not directly causing sin in your life or damaging your conscience, we are called to be good citizens. We're called to be good citizens. The Westminster Confession in, uh, in 23.4, it says this. I love what it says. It is the duty of people to pray for magistrates, that means leaders, to honor their persons, uh, to pray, uh, to pay them tribute and other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be sub- subject to their authority for conscience' sake. Infidelity or difference in religion, that means even if they're not godly people, does not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to him. Just because he's a jerk, or just because he may have a really terrible law, like you can't eat ice cream on Sundays, doesn't mean that we start an anarchy and burn the place. God is the one that is sovereign. A mandated vaccine is ungodly in the same way that a mandated cyanide Kool-Aid drink by Jim Jones is ungodly. That is exercising something over someone else's body that you have no authority to do. But if the government says, hey, every Tuesday at 4.15 p.m., we're going to cut the electric out for five minutes across the entire nation so these weird pagan demonic climate activists will stop smearing mashed potatoes on the Mona Lisa, right? You just got to go along with it, okay? Is that sinful? No, that's fine. And if you really need the electric for that five minutes that they cut your electric off, then go buy a generator at Harbor Freight. That's not sinful. There's no reason that we need to try to be a revolutionary about something like that. Christians are not revolutionaries, they're reformers. Revolution, revolts, that's where that word comes from, it burns down. Reformers take what is there and begin reforming it, bringing back to the form into which it's supposed to be. And Christianity, we know the true form because we have the true form, the cast of the gospel and the cast of the scriptures. In verse 1, Paul also says Christians in the world are to be obedient ready for every good work. There is passive submission to civil authorities, but there's also active obedience. When the cop is coming in the opposite direction with you, with lights and sirens flashing, trying to get to a wreck, he owns the road in that moment. You know what you need to do? You need to submit to his authority, get over, give him some room so he can go help someone and fulfill his duty. 
But when you're behind him and you pull up to the scene of a crash and that car is on fire, you need to get out and help and actively be obedient in saving someone else's life. We are to be ready for every good work in our society. We're to be salt and light, Matthew 5, not merely obeying laws that aren't ungodly and and inherently sinful, but also being involved in society, actually uh, making an impact. Paul did this in Acts 25 and, and through the end. Paul knew his rights as a Roman citizen. He knew uh, he was not allowed to be beaten the way that he was being beaten by those Roman centurions. He knew that he could appeal to Caesar, go through the court system, and, uh, and have a trial for what was going on. Paul was aware according to Acts 17, that God himself had sovereignly caused each person on earth to be born into the families and nations they live in. So you know what Paul did? He just turned the other cheek. He didn't care. He knew he had rights, but he just let people walk all over him. No! He used his rights because he knew that God had put him there in the time in which he lived, and he had these tools available to him. You want some controversy? I've already given you some, but I'll give you some more. I think it's actually borderline. But I think you tiptoe around sin when you do not use your civil rights to go vote. Is that because Scripture says it's a sin? No. But because Scripture gives us common sense to participate in the society in which God has placed us for the purpose of seeing His kingdom come and His will be done. Well, it's rigged. Well, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. But when you vote for certain things like Amendment 2, which should have been passed this past week, you will stand before the Lord with a clear conscience that is able to say, I hate abortion. I hate evil. I hate the murder of children. We need to be aware of our rights that we have in our society and actually use them. This is one reason. This is all the more reason we need to raise up godly men to run for office so that we have overt Christians in office being that salt and light, making some sort of change and actually influencing policy because politics is policy. It's not a person. Politics literally means policy. It's law. We need godly men and godly women in politics. Titus 3.2 To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We're to speak evil of no one. Evil here is where we get the word blasphemy. We are not to blaspheme anyone. Why? Because whether they are president or resident, that person is made in the image of God. Speaking of our tongues, our language, our mouths, James 3.9 says this, With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. These things ought not be. We think blasphemy is only something evil we say about God. We think it's only some terrible false doctrine that we can come up with about God. But, But man, being made in God's image, being his image bearer, he is able to be blasphemed against. Blasphemy is essentially speaking evil and malicious intent towards someone to do them harm, whether God or man. Blasphemy is not the same thing as criticizing, as long as you're able to criticize with a godly heart, 
understanding uh, and using correct judgment, knowing that how you judge, that same measure of judgment will be given to you. That's Matthew 7. That's actually what that passage of judge not means that the world wants to quote out of context. We also see it all over the Psalms in what are known as imprecatory Psalms. These Psalms ask for God to destroy enemies. Well, isn't that evil? Isn't that speaking blasphemy? No. Because to ask for blasphemous enemies to be destroyed is to desire what is good to flourish. To love something is to hate something else. Psalm 11, which we just sang, it says, Fire snares brimstone, furious storms. Upon the wicked he shall reign. Yes, we want that because that is God being just. But the imprecatory psalms are always given in a manner of repentance and always through the frame of righteousness contained in the word of God. For someone to say, our president is wicked and I hope he dies, that's blasphemy. To say, I think our president is wicked and I pray the Lord would draw him to repentance, yet if he does not repent and is hardened by his own sin, then I pray the Lord would remove him and crush him with a rod of iron. That is not blasphemy. The latter is concerned with that man or whoever the president is being restored to repentance and being led in the way of righteousness. There's a difference. Isaiah 3.12 My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. We, we actually are seeing this played out as a parable in our own society right now because we have a functional infant in the Oval Office and we have a woman as a vice president. We think that's funny, haha, <laughs> okay. No, seriously, this, this actually is a form of judgment. Right? They are misleading us. They, they are forms of judgment on a nation who hates God. Do you know what we say to that? Lord, forgive us. Would they repent? Or as Isaiah continues on in chapter 3, would they be judged? This is not blasphemy. This is godliness. Christians were also to avoid quarreling, unlike the false teachers that lived on Crete, who just want to fight and be pugnacious for no reason. This doesn't mean that there aren't just causes to fight about. We need to fight against the, the demonic left transgenderism movement because it is satanic. We need to fight with vigor for the unborn. We need to fight against the government believing that it is God who thinks it can control every area of our life. We do need to fight against these things with the sword of the Spirit, not our own muscle. They're noble causes. And sometimes fighting with the sword of the Spirit will take our muscle. What we are to avoid is this anarchist tendency of wanting to fight about everything. Gas is $4 a gallon. I'm going to go march right up to the Capitol and let them have it. No, you're not. You're just going to pay the $4 because you can't control any of that. You have a sit right to your congressman, right to your senator. Let those things be known. But thinking you can march on D.C. and scream about your gas to get it under $3 is exactly what the radical demonic left does. You fight a different way. We're to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy to all people even if they don't deserve it. Gentle. This word gentle here means carrying an easy load, like the yoke of Christ in Matthew 11. It means you are careful with your words and you're careful with your actions. 
It means you are precise in how you respond to sin and how you address the issues of your day. It means you mind your mouth because you do not want anyone to speak evil of Christ. Proverbs 10:19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Gentleness gives way to self-control. Calling sinful leaders to repentance in a firm but concerned tone is being gentle. Flipping over a table full of castration drugs at the health expo that they want to give to your seven-year-old is actually being quite gentle because God will destroy their bodies. Give them a chance to repent. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is humility and discernment on how to handle and respond with wisdom in all situations. We are called to be courteous to all people. We're not to be preppers who live in our basements and never interact with anyone. That doesn't mean that we don't read the times and realize things that are going on and if we need to stock up on some extra beans. No, that's being prudent. But what it does mean is we don't become hermits and we are not to be kind only to those who are also in Christ. Luke 6.32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you for even sinners do that? The same attitudes and good works we live out in our Christian homes and in our churches are to be lived out into society so that all may see. This was actually one of the purposes, the chief purposes of the law in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 7, listen at this. This is God speaking. See, I have taught you statutes and rules. I'm sorry, this is Moses. See, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. This is Moses telling the Israelites the second generation right before they go into the land to possess it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, listen to this, when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So why are we to live this way? Why know our rights? Why utilize them? Why live peaceable lives? Why fight for the right causes? Why be kind? Why be godly everywhere? Why be salt that seasons situations? Why be light that brings godly clarity to every circumstance? Verse 3 tells us why. For we ourselves. For, right here in the Greek, acts like a big equal sign. Why do all this? Here's your equal sign right here. What was the, the comedian? Here's your sign right here. Verse 3. Bill Engel, that was his name. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Notice Paul is telling Titus and us, your present living is based upon a past experience, and your past experience is one that should cause you, of all people, dear Christian, to resonate with treating people with kindness and showing godly character. You once followed the world, Ephesians 2, you once believed that the state was God, that the state had your best interest in mind. You once believed that everything revolved around you. You once believed that you knew everything and that you were wise while you were foolish. 
Yes, you were foolish. You were disobedient, led astray. You claimed to be wise, and you were a fool. You were disobedient, being lawless. You were led astray, not by others, not only by others, but by your own flesh. This is Romans 1. Paul's recapitulating this same theology of Romans 1 right here in this little sentence. You were slaves to various passions and slaves to various pleasures instead of being slaves to Christ like Paul is in Titus 1. You, you used to pass your days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, being poisoned by your own hate-filled murdering heart, and being subject to others who act the same, reaping what we sow in a vicious cycle of violence. Titus 3.3 is a snapshot of fallen man's condition in his total depravity apart from the grace of God. But notice this entire verse is all in the past tense. Nova and I have been learning past tense together when we're doing Latin in the mornings. Past tense happens when, Nova? Oh, on the spot. Back in time. Back in time. It happens in the past. It's all in the past tense. This is bad news. This was bad news. And if there was bad news and it's all in the past tense, that means that there must be some sort of present tense or something has happened, good news, to change this. Aha, you're right. Verses 4 through 7, which in the original is all one giant run-on sentence because Paul gets so excited that he can't put a comma or a period or anything. He wants to tell you <gasps> all of this glorious truth. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ on full display. The same gospel that Paul opened this letter to Titus with and the same gospel that he's alluded to in a small scale in Titus 2, 11 through 15. While we were in this fallen state of foolishness and disobedience and hatred in this rebellion led by Satan who had blinded our minds, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, God chose to be gracious and good to us rebels and appear on scene to save us. We've already seen this verb here of, of, of appearing, of appearing. It's where we get the word epiphany from. Back in Titus 2, 11, and in verse 14 of Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and then we are to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of God, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The goodness and graciousness of God appeared in our lives, those who are called unto salvation, those whom He has saved, those of us who know that we are sinners and have repented of our sins, it has appeared. God's graciousness and loving kindness was and is a love for humanity. For he is not saving like a, a tree or a flower. He does, but that is secondary. He saves his own image bearers, his own sons and daughters. That's what the loving kindness word there means in the Greek, literally, philanthropia. That's where we get the word philanthropy, like a love for mankind, to see mankind flourish. God saves us 
from out of the dark world we find ourselves interacting within. But why does he save us? Paul gives us like this, this equation, this, then this, then this, then this, then this. It's a, it's a plus, this, this great algorithm here we see. Why does he do this? Is it because we, we have like some potential, like God looks down and sees, well, they've got some spark of potential there. Or that guy over there, he's less bad than Hitler. Well, yeah, there are plenty of people that are less bad than Hitler, right? No. Verse 5. He, God, saved us. Why? Not because of anything we do, but according to His own mercy. God does not look upon anyone and saves them and says, well, there's a little spark of hope in that one. No, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that same glory that appeared in Christ. All of humanity is equal in being sinners. It is God who chooses to be merciful and save whom he will. We do not force his hand because we cannot. It is by his mercy. If salvation has come to you, dear Christian, and I pray that it truly has, you who bear the name of Christ, it must have. If salvation has come to you, it is not because of something you have done or you're going to do for God or God foreseeing something. No. If that were the case, it would not be mercy. Mercy is being given what you do not deserve. If it were based on something that you did, it would be just. How has God been merciful in saving his people? How has this loving kindness been extended to them? We don't have to guess. Paul tells us. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. In the garden, God breathed the life, the breath of life into man's nostrils after he made him. When man rebelled, this breath left him. This presence of God, it, they, they, were, they were subtracted from one another. The Holy Spirit throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, is likened to wind and breath and in the Old Testament as well. And the word for spirit in the New Testament, and it's used right here, is pneumatos or pneumatos, which is where we get the word pneumonia from, which has to do with what? Breathing. God recreates his people. He renews them back to the garden by breathing back into them the true breath of life, the Holy Spirit poured out like a rushing wind, Acts 2. And how has God done this? Uh, you all just need to try really hard. Here's a list of rules. Try, try, try. And then at the end of it, we'll balance it up. No, that's not what it is. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christ's dying breath upon the cross, Luke 23, 46, is our breath of new life. And what is this life unto? It is unto an eternal hope, Titus 1, which we live looking forward to in the present. Titus 2, that's what it's all about. How being justified, being forgiven, being brought back in from dark to light, from death to life, by His grace, we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Saints, Christians, this is your promise. This is yours. This is your hope. This is what should spur you on. This, was, this is what must spur you on in your living that you truly are a son or a daughter in God's house. Do you see why 
It is so important to live in a manner that is worthy of your calling. Do you see this? Because you are an heir. You are going to inherit something. Throughout Scripture, from front to back, salvation so often is given in familial terms. That is why our families are so important, because they are small-scale representations of the gospel functioning. None of us choose to be born, but all of us who are parents did choose, whether we realize it or not, to have a child and bring them into our families. The same is true for our salvation. We do not birth ourselves. And what is it that we inherit if we are in the family of God? It's not silver. It's not gold. It's not houses. It's not a car. It's not anything like that. It is God himself, the one thing we must have. Dear believer, you do not have to wait for this inheritance, though. We so often think through the lens of, oh, I'll, I'll, when, when somebody dies, someone's left me some big inheritance. I'm in their will, but I've got to wait. No, you do not have to wait for this right here. The God who never lies has given you a down payment, a promise, a good faith payment right now. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In Him, in Christ, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of his glory. The same Holy Spirit who is God, he is your guarantee of a full acquirement of your restoration of being free from sin, perfect as God is perfect, being a true human, being restored to what we were meant to be. The justifying work of Christ on the cross and the regeneration of the Spirit and the decree of the Father, we see all of this right here in these three verses. It is a full Trinitarian work of salvation. But remember this, God does not merely breathe a, a new spirit into you at salvation, just something random. He breathes His Holy Spirit into you. You are called to be holy. We see this in Titus, why it's being nailed into us. We are called to be holy because we carry something holy in us, the Holy Spirit. This, what we have just been presented with, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dearly beloved, do you know it? Do you know this as the gospel? Has this taken root in your life? This is the good news. You who are lost, you must hear the news. You must hear this and know that you live in the bad news portion. All of that past tense stuff is present tense for you. The wrath of God will be poured out upon you. You must repent and believe. Would you know, would you see, would you breathe in this new life by breathing out your old life and repenting of your sins, and crying to God for forgiveness, and following Christ. And you who are, are following Christ, you need to hear the gospel every single day, because the gospel is the basis for your life, for everything that you do. We Christians, so often, we need to get lost to remember what it is like to be found, so that we may go to those who are lost, and beckon them to come to the light. Why, why are we to mind how we live in God's house and how we live out in His world? Because we bear witness 
to the saving power of God who saved us out of the very world we still interact with. We have no idea how trustworthy this saying is. That little phrase, this saying is trustworthy, is found only in the letters to Titus and Timothy. And many believe that it's actually a, a tag that was put at the end of things to highlight a, an early hymn that the church sang or early creed. This needs to be our hymn. This needs to be our creed. I want to insist that this is our creed. Church, it should be obvious what the application of this text is for our life this morning. That, that we who believe in God, that we would see the bigger picture, that we would, would devote ourselves to good, courteous, kind, loving works, not just for fellow Christians, but to all people, because we doing this, we doing these things is a small-scale reflection of the saving grace of God that appeared in Christ, which has brought salvation for all people. Go and be the gospel. Speak it to people. Live it out like you have actually been changed. Declare it with your lives and how you live in the time and place to which you have been assigned, assigned under the government in which you live, in your church, in your home, in your own personal faculties. Let this be your hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound, like a rushing wind that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That rushing wind is the Spirit, and it is amazing grace, and it sounds like wind coming into the upper room and at Pentecost. Know that the way that you live your life, dear Christian, will either give light and sight to the blind by God's grace, or will push them further into blindness and darkness because of your sin. Would we be a people that are excellent and profitable, not just for the church, but for all? Go ye therefore and do likewise. Grace and peace to be with you. Let's pray.